0: Um, I want to turn the conversation around to the brain, as Sam has uh, mentioned. The brain, neuroscience are everywhere. We're being bombarded with information purporting to explain how our experiences and behaviour can be explained in terms of stuff going on between our ears. We're being told that neural processes can under, can help us to understand falling in love and responding to a work of art. There's a slew of books on this is your brain on X, fill in the gap. I suggested to my publisher that we should have a book on this is your brain on ridiculous hyperbole. Um, It hasn't happened yet, but but watch this space, it could still still happen. We're being offered information about how to use this this stuff in improving our lives, so you can buy books on neuro-parenting, how to be a better parent by thinking about how your children's (laughs) brains operate, Neuromarketing, how to use these forces in in turning yourself into a millionaire. A recent study by O'Connor and colleagues from UCL, published in the journal Neuron, showed very nicely, I think, how these messages are distorted by the media and are often used to conceal political or value judgments. So, for example, they picked out, they picked out three themes at work in, in the popular press's um, treatment of neuroscience. The idea of the brain as capital, as some stuff that you possess and can grow if you do the right things. So we're familiar with brain training devices you can put on your Nintendo DS um, we're, told, we're told about experiments which seem to show that doing a particular thing makes a certain bit of your brain bigger. So being a particular kind of parent apparently makes certain bits of your children's brains bigger, as if anybody um, w- would ever stop to think, what does it mean for a particular bit of your brain to be bigger as opposed to working better, more effectively, more efficiently? Actually, in neuroscience, often a quieter brain is the one that's doing a better job. A second thing they pick out is the idea of the brain as an index of difference. The idea here being that we make decisions about how certain groups of people differ from each other. And then we look for neuroscientific evidence to prove that it is so. And this happens in the case of gender differences in psychological processes and um, then neuroscientific findings. Other findings to do with sexuality, to do with mental illness. I'm particularly interested in the way schizophrenia is treated uh, in this context. We're constantly being told about the schizophrenic brain. Again, a lack of careful consideration about the coherence of the concept of schizophrenia. It's enough simply to say this is what a schizophrenic brain looks like and forget about the normal brain that we're supposed to be contrasting it with. A third theme um, that O'Connor and colleagues picked out was the idea of the brain as biological proof. And This is one that's wound me up particularly. The um, agitator-in-chief um, in this campaign, this rush to the neuro, has been the New York Times, who have had a series of short pieces re- recently purporting to explain all sorts of things in terms of contemporary neuroscience. And one that particularly wound me up recently was when they explained how the processes of reading, the things that we all experience when we read fiction, you know, when you read... A piece of fiction that is emotional you feel emotions okay we all knew that thanks for telling us scientists but the the interesting rhetorical move in this New York Times piece is that they're saying yes we all knew that when you read something when you read about people's emotions you also feel those emotions but here's some stuff that shows that when you read those passages your brain is doing a particular thing okay your brain is showing the emotional reactions. Now, that's interesting and important. I think it's important that we learn about the brain, but it's the rhetorical move that interests me because essentially you're saying, here is some psychological truth, which we all accept, but now here's some real truth, which is neuroscientific truth, and therefore the stuff we've been talking about has actually been proven to, to a high level. Many people are starting to get angry with um, the way things have turned out, some have blamed neuroscientists themselves for overplaying their findings. And I think in some cases, this is, this is fair. Some people do overdo it. Most of the people that I work with, the cognitive neuroscientists that I work with, have a sober assessment of the limitations of their own science and are looking to find ways to, to improve the science. And so I wouldn't go too, too far with the neuroscientist bashing. There are, there are bigger issues play. Philosophers like Roger Scruton have argued that neuroscience cannot come anywhere close to a full explanation of human experience from a philosophical perspective. Others, such as Ray Tallis, have argued very elegantly that this rush to the neuro reflects a dangerous scientism. Evidence of the backlash is beginning to appear everywhere. Stephen Poole's quite funny but rather unfair attack on Joan Lehrer's book, Imagine, recently, James Atlas's piece on those this-is-your-brain-on books in the New York Times. So more and more people are reacting to the idea that neurotruth is privileged among, above other kinds of truth. And I'm interested in why this is going on. I'm interested in what the problem is. Why are we drawn to these explanations? Why do we lap them up? in the way that we do. As I said, my issue is not with the science itself. The science has to be judged according to its own laws. And like any scientific findings, if this stuff is shown to be testable, replicable, if it is shown to be methodologically sound, if it is shown to be conceptually coherent, it's coherent, then then we will live with it. So my issue is not with the science, it's with the way we consume this information. And my interest in it, as a fiction writer is why we are drawn to these ex- ex- explanations. How do we use and respond to neuroscientific information? What difference does it make? How does it change our understanding of ourselves? For example, the contemporary neuroscience is telling us that we, d- we don't have a single person in charge up here. We don't have a sing- single, what psychologists call, a central executive. What we actually have are lots and lots of different processes, each doing their own thing, each evolved for a different purpose, and each competing with each other to try and direct behaviour and cognition. We're a bunch of systems, all fighting it out. We're not one single self, no one single centre of control. And as a writer, I'm interested in what happens if you believe that? What does it mean for you as a human being? What does it mean for you as a character in a novel? And so I'm going to keep coming back to the relevance of fiction in this topic because I think fiction gives us a way of testing out whether these neuromaterialist accounts of human experience work at the right level of explanation to be useful and satisfying to us as human beings. So one thing we can say is that if neuroscience really does change the way we understand ourselves, we should see it reflected in the fictions that that human beings produce. If neuroscience gives us fictions that work, then arguably it's a sign that those explanations will work for us as human beings. If neuroexplanations provide uh, satisfying novels, satisfying narratives, then arguably they will work for us more generally. So I think it's worth looking at fiction from that point of view. Do we see neuroscience in fiction? I'm going to restrict myself to literary fiction, In this respect, we could probably have a different conversation about other genres of fiction, such as science fiction. But do we see these neuroscientific um, appetites appearing in the books that people write? And I'm interested here in a couple of previous paradigm shifts where we really did see these ideas coming through into um, what people were writing. I'm thinking in particular of Darwinism and Freudianism, where... The ideas about natural selection, on the one hand, the ideas about the dynamic unconscious, on the other hand, really did change the way people wrote fiction. So you can think of Thomas Hardy's novels as, in some ways, reactions against Darwinism. You can think of, obviously, D.H. Lawrence in relation to Freudianism. It may not have been immediate, but it did happen. It happened for Darwin. It happened for Freud. Will it happen for Damasio? and the other pop, popular neuroscientists that, we, that are visible today. My initial observation is that I don't think there is actually a lot of neuroscience in literary fiction, and I'm going to come back to some reasons why that might be the case. First, I'd like to offer a couple of speculations on the pros and cons of these accounts. Can materialism, can neuroscientific materialism, ever be positive and constructive. Well, I've been asking around about this, and I've found people say that, yes, sometimes it can be useful to think of yourself as a brain rather than as a person, and particularly when things are going wrong. So some clinical psychologists have said to me that when they're talking to their patients about, for example, anxiety and depression, if they can give the patient an explanation in terms of neurotransmitters or bits of the brain, it can be effective for them. It can help them to distance themselves from their problems and get some sort of perspective on it. And I find it works for myself. You know, when I'm depressed, I I think in terms of neurotransmitters, and it helps me to get um, some sort of distance from the the difficulty. Another positive, I think, which which, uh, relates to the negative capability ideas we were discussing earlier. I'm taking negative capability simply to refer to the idea that we can sometimes be happy with what we don't know. And uh, the the current state of neuroscience offers offers us a way of achieving that kind of negative, negative capability. We can be materialists, even though we're nowhere near the kinds of explanations we ultimately need. So, for example, we're nowhere near a neuroscientific account of consciousness, but we can still believe that ultimately it will be achieved. So a very interesting novel in this respect is Ian McEwan's Saturday, which tells the story of a neurosurgeon, Henry Perone, who uh, reflects on his own experience in terms of the underlying neuroscientific processes. And the book ends with a with a, vote of, uh, with a note of optimism about the future of neuromaterialism. Um, We're in Perón's thoughts. Um, Just like the digital codes of replicating life held within DNA, the brain's fundamental secret will be laid open one day. But even when it has, the wonder will remain that mere wet stuff can make this bright inward cinema of thought, of sight and sound and touch bound into a vivid illusion of an instantaneous present, with a self, another brightly wrought illusion, hovering like a ghost at its centre. Could it ever be explained how matter becomes conscious? He can't even begin to imagine a satisfactory account, but he knows it will come. The secret will be revealed. Over decades, as long as the scientists and the institutions remain in place, the explanations will refine themselves into an irrefutable truth about consciousness. Okay, so Perone is optimistic but he knows he's nowhere near that account now. So there's this kind of neuromaterialism is providing a kind of space within which we can feel optimistic, but happy with what we don't know, happy that the answers will come one day, but they're sort of out there, um, ready to comfort us in the future. So there are a couple of positive notes about materialism. A more negative view of materialism often arises within psychiatric discourses, as well. And so in a project I'm doing with Jane McNaughton at Durham, we're interested in the way that people who hear voices make sense of their experiences. So hearing voices in the absence of any speaker, uh, usually associated with severe mental illness, such as schizophrenia, but actually extending far beyond that category. And the voice hearers that we talk to in Durham often vehemently reject the biomedical account of their experiences. They don't want to see the voices as being about their brains. They want to think of their voices as being about them, as being messages to them, as being part of their selves. And we're arguing in this project called Hearing the Voice, which is funded by the Wellcome Trust, that understanding human experience calls for multiple parallel levels of explanation. In order to understand something as complex and rich as voice hearing, we have to look at it, from different perspectives at the same time. And this is very much our view of the the medical humanities as we're working through it at Durham. Do these thoughts give us any clues to the fate of neuromaterialism? I've tried to suggest that neuromaterialism is sexy. It must be because we wouldn't keep buying the books. We wouldn't keep buying the New York Times in the quantities that we do. We must like it at some level. But I think there are some reasons for doubting that this trend will continue. One reason for doubt is that neuromaterialism might be very good at dealing with psychopathology. So I've argued that in cases of anxiety and depression, it's clinically useful sometimes to help people to understand what's happening to them in terms of brain processes. But that might be as far as it goes. In terms of understanding ordinary experience, everyday experience, these explanations might not be so useful. And I think one clue to this is that when you do see neuroscience in contemporary literary fiction, it tends to be about pathology. So there's been a whole string of autism novels. There's Jonathan Lethem's uh, Motherless Brooklyn on Tourette's syndrome. There are novels on on, on schizophrenia which take a st- strongly neuroscientific line. But there isn't an awful lot of stuff about ordinary experience and explaining that in terms of neuro uh, neuro accounts. A, a second reason for doubt is whether neuroscience gives us the right level of explanation. It may be that if we could come up with an account of how we feel the way we do when we fall in love, that explanation in terms of brain systems and neurotransmitters might be just too damn complicated, and we wouldn't be able to use it. In comparison to those other paradigm shifts that I mentioned, Freudianism and Darwinism, those the, 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 the explanations provided by those accounts are much more usable, they're much much simpler in comparison. I wonder whether we will always be drawn back to those kind of person-level accounts of of explanation. Darwinism and Freudianism gives us something about who we are as people rather than who we are as neurons. And a related third point there is that neuro-explanations may not be very good at dealing with motives The one thing a novelist wants to explain, the one thing a novelist needs to explain, is why people do stuff. Why do they do the things they do? Why do they act in the ways that they do? And Freudian and Darwinian explanations are very good at explaining why people are motivated to do stuff. I wonder whether neuroscientific explanations will ever be quite so good. So I'm feeling pleasure... I could explain that in lots of different ways, but accounting for it in terms of activity in my ascending Mesolympic dopamine system might not be the best way of capturing a literary audience. And the fourth, and possibly the most contentious, reason for skepticism is this perhaps the brain isn't actually all that complex. Now, that's, an, of course, an absurd proposition to make. There are 80 billion or so neurons in the human brain, and we're nowhere near to understanding how it works. But I want to make a comparison with another discourse which, which, as we've already alluded to today, whose whose fate changed in the last 15 years or so, and that is genetics. If we we could wind the clock back 15 years, we'd find a lot of interest in the genome, in uh, the ways in which certain aspects of our behaviour were genetically determined. And this was the, this in the days before the discovery, before the d- description of the human genome, when we thought there were about 100,000 or more genes in the genome. Of course, we then discovered that there are far fewer than we thought, 23,000 or so. And Nick Rose and others have written very elegantly on the way this information was consumed. The genome seemed to become less complex Than we thought. Of course, what we've actually learned is that it's far more complex because genes are turning each other on and off and the whole system is interacting with experience and so on. But in terms of popular perceptions of genetics, um, the value of these explanations seems to have waned a bit in recent years. And I wonder if the same thing will happen with neuroscience. The reason I wonder that is that most cognitive neuroscientists nowadays don't talk in terms of 80 billion neurons. They they talk in terms of a very small number of core systems that do what we do. And a a reasonable estimate of the number of these core systems is about three. There are about three core systems that everybody is talking about. In the neuroscientific literature at the moment, there's the default mode network which underlies memory, imagination and thinking about other minds. There's the on-task network, which does stuff when we're presented with cognitive tasks, and there's the salience network which kind of schedules information among the different those, those, other, those other systems. And that's pretty much it. I mean, of course, the brain is doing other stuff, but the, the, the real center of attention is on those three or so core systems. When that message gets through, I wonder whether neuroscience will become a bit less sexy. There's something about it at the moment that seems to account for the richness of who we are, the complexity of who we are, and, the, and in terms of that massive number of neurons. If we realised, if we accepted that the brain actually wasn't made up of so many different systems, then I wonder if it will change our, uh, our enthusiasm for it. Okay, back to fiction. I think fiction is the right Medium for thinking about these ideas because of the way it puts subjectivity, character, and moral action at its heart, and thus individual characters' explanations for behavior. We do see neuroscience in contemporary literary fiction. I've mentioned in McEwan's Saturday already uh, Jonathan Franson's novel The Corrections is quite interesting in the way it deals with Gary and his screwy neurotransmitters associated with his depression. Uh, Richard Power's book The Echo Maker is a fantastic um, exploration of how uh, neuromaterialist explanations function in fiction. But in that case, we're very much concerned with Brain damage, what happens in Powers' novel is that you've got a, a neuropsychologist, a kind of Oliver Sacks-style figure, who's working with somebody who is very badly brain damaged in an accident, and that's the, that's the starting point for, the, for the, um, the narrative. There's not a huge amount in terms of explaining everyday feelings and behaviour in terms of neuroscientific information. So as a writer, I wanted to go a bit further. I wanted to explore the story world of a character whose understanding of herself is shaped by her neuroscientific knowledge. And I thought, if you're working on the brain all day long and you're seeing this information all day long, does it actually change the way you understand your experience? So I've had little snippets of, you know, uh, little epiphanies about this from talking to neuroscientists. I mean, I've got one neuroscientist friend who said to me one day, where you or I would have said, I felt a bit anxious when I saw that, she said, I had an amygdala reaction when I saw that. <laughs> And I thought, this person, incredibly smart woman um, who is thinking about this stuff, is actually changing the way she sees her own experience, and I wanted to go further with that. I wanted to see whether that worked in the pages of a novel. For example, some neuroscientists, such as Patrick Haggard, tell us we have no free will. Neuroscience proves that there is no free will. An interesting question we can perhaps pursue another day. I I wonder what happens to a character in a novel, a human being in a story who doesn't believe that she has free will. What does that do to you as a character in a novel? What does it do when you're forced to make moral choices? Because novels are all about making moral choices. uh, Novels have to be moral. They have to be about what's right and what's wrong. So I'm going to end by just reading a bit from the book that resulted from these musings, which is called A Box of Birds, and it's coming out in a few weeks' time um, in which the the protagonist, Yvonne, who is a neuroscientist, has a moment of what I call neuromaterialist existentialism. (laughs) So it's 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 a moment at which knowing so much about the brain is actually changing the way she feels about herself and about her own identity. So Yvonne is embroiled in relationships with two of her students, not sexual, um, in, she, she has two students who are causing her a particular problem. James, who appears to be an animal rights campaigner, which is a bit worrying because um, Yvonne works, some of her work involves animals. And Gareth, who, quite frankly, is a bit nuts. <laughs> um, and this, this, this is from the opening scene in the novel. They're sitting in Yvonne's office, and she's doing a kind of tutorial with them, and they're misbehaving. I watched James slump back into the chair and push off his trainers. He's wearing a Fred Flintstone hairpiece. They they, they wind her up by turning up to the tutorials in fancy dress. He's wearing a Fred Flintstone hairpiece and a T-shirt that says, Big in Norwich. His lips are dry and there's a tender colour in his cheeks that hints at childhood embarrassments. His eyelashes are long and dark. A mole on his right cheek is the mark of a perfect, arrogant beauty. I've heard this tone of voice before, of course, the slick automaticity of the outrage, the wince in his cheeks as he hurts himself on the words. No doubt the people who firebombed an empty storage room in the East Wing had it, took it with them to their conscience meetings to argue for a better world without cruelty to animals. But James doesn't seem the sort who would act on his convictions. He's just testing me, pushing on the edifice to see if it will break. He wants the easy kick at the cruelty of animal research but he hasn't the heart or the arguments to see it through. Like I say, in this lab we're mostly using transgenics. We don't have to tamper with their brains at all. We let their genes do it for us. Don't you have any doubts about that? He stares at me, sensing a weakness I didn't know about. Sometimes, I say. So are they conscious when you're fiddling around with their transgenics or whatever? That depends on what you mean by conscious. I wish he'd look away now. I like to think I can hide it by speaking when I'm spoken to, smiling back when people smile at me, and maybe giving a little obligatory blush when it's a man. But then, out of nowhere, someone sees right through me, notices how I stumble over a response to a question, or leave a glance out of a window hanging a half second too long. That feeling of being centred, that X that's supposed to mark the spot of the soul, it gets shown up as the nothing it is. James has me, the doubt that's at the heart of me. It's like I've thrown open a door onto a party you can hear from the street, only to show that there's nothing there. I mean what you mean, Dr. Churcher. I mean what it feels like to be alive, to experience the amazing qualities of existence. I'm not talking about neural pathways or bits of the brain working together in harmony. I mean what it feels like to be you, Dr. Yvonne Churcher, Age 30-something, possibly single, to be that person in this room right now. I redden and hate myself for it. Here, in this room, is not really the place to discuss this, James. He holds the gaze. It's too determined. It's Its need to embarrass me is too much on show. But I find myself yielding to it in a kind of admiration for his guessing the truth about me. He has me in his gaze, that cool, fascinated fixedness. Not fighting me now, more like, more like what comes after fighting. You take it to pieces, Dr. Churcher, and then you can't put the pieces back together again. I laugh. I know I shouldn't, but I can't help it. It's a midbrain reflex, some neural cluster buzzing some other neural cluster, and going nowhere near that mythical centre, whatever it is that's supposed to be me. He's blushing now, scorched by an older woman's mockery, and I can feel the tingling dread that tells me I've gone too far. He's hauling out the smile, hardening it, putting a bit of menace into it, a clench of anger. It's too hot in here. All the doors and windows sealed, and electronic locks on all the doors, and just the two of us trapped in this moment, fighting for air. Thank you.